What's a food you couldn't live without? I think pasta and sushi. Oh, two very good options. Yeah. I feel like a basic grain will get you through. <laughs> If it was to suddenly vanish from your plate, you thought about that very practically. I appreciate it. And your world, it would be a bleaker place. I think shawarma, the cherry tomato, cucumbers, uh, Thai curry. Oh, nice. I can think of a couple. Oh, that's easy. Coffee, mangoes, chocolate. Is chocolate count? Yeah. My diet at this point is about 25% sushi, so my life without a salmon avocado roll, I don't even want to know her. Sashimi, um, sashimi. Oh, I love sashimi. It's so good. Delicious. The thing is, if I have a craving for any of those things, I can just pop down to the local Canadian grocery and pick it up at record high prices, but still. As if by some magic, exactly what I want, when I want it, sits on a shelf ready for me. But of course, there's no actual magic here. Behind the scenes, a globe-sized wheel turns fluorescent lit freezers into ready-to-eat banquets. But beyond the aisles of shiny packaging hangs a big, yellow, and squishy caution sign. I really like bananas. Really? Yes. You're listening to Nice Genes, where we prune and pluck sun-ripe genomics tales brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm your host, Dr. Kaylee Byers, connoisseur of delicious science stories. To peel into today's episode, settled in. You got your water. Yeah, I'm joined by Nice Genes producer Sean Holden, who has a little non-commissioned and entirely unrigorous experiment for us to try. Um, do you have the goods? You got the goods? Yeah, 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 yeah. I got the goods. Uh, can you tell everyone what <laughs> what the goods are? Yeah, okay. So sitting before Dr. Byers and myself are two tasty treats. We have a locally sourced and wonderfully bright banana. And to be more specific, it's a Cavendish banana. Mm-hmm. Kind of the ones that you're used to seeing in your, your grocery store. And next to that, we have an also bright replica of a banana. Ooh. It's your sort of run-of-the-mill banana-flavored candy. So are we in taste test territory? Is that what's going on? Okay, so do you want me to tell you why or should we just kind of get into get into eating? Uh, yeah, I want to eat them. Let's start with the banana. Let's give it a go. Hope people are getting some really mm. nice mushy yeah. bananas. No, this sound. is good. Okay. This is good. I bet it sounds really good. Okay, I'm getting an earthy taste, a fruity, a fruity flavor. Bananas from, you know, the terroir. No surprises. No, yeah. <laughs> you weren't surprised no, by the taste yeah, of your surpri- banana. <laughs> Whoa. I <laughs> oh, wasn't seeing that. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Banana. It's good. Okay. So you got your treat. Mm. You got the... Yeah, the tiny banana statue, but, but squishier. You know, actually doing the compare, so I can really tell. Yeah, I'd say... One, it's like a wannabe banana. You know, it's going for the sweetness. Like a, like a, almost like a knockoff. Like they kind of took the smell of the banana and kind of crammed it into a really sweet sugar. Yeah, kind of like we don't fully know what it tastes like, but we know what it smells like. So we'll try to make a flavor based off that. Yeah? Yeah. There is a big difference between the banana versus the candy. Well, the truth is the candy that we might think is just super sweet because of artificial flavoring has actually quite the backstory. Hmm. Now, we've all been there. You're lost and troubled and the only thing around you for miles is a processed and glucose banana bonbon. Hmm. When really all you want is the real thing. 
and the candy softening in your mouth is a toothsome letdown. Tale as old as time. We've all been, we've all been there. <laughs> but why doesn't the, you know, the candy, the sweet treat, hold up to its big banana inspiration? Yeah, I mean, I'll reveal in just a moment. But I think it's time for me to raise the stakes of this seemingly mundane experiment. Raise away, by all means. Okay, so that candy taste isn't a mere wannabe banana. In fact, in some ways, it's a truer representation than the actual fruit you have on your desk right now. Okay. And that sweeter taste? It's sort of a time capsule, a remnant of the past. And by flipping through the dusty pages of its story, we start our journey of uncovering a stark truth about our future. Hmm. Potentially the end of our loved bananas. A dark projection of what could be complete and total. Banana Gangan. Well, Sean, you know I love the drama. That does feel very dramatic, and I'm imagining sort of a Ben Affleck cameo already. Yeah, no, Batman, but Banana Man? Is that what you're kind of picturing? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm, those are the vibes. Okay. Yeah. Eric is Banana Man, ever alert for the call to action. Ready to peel back the layers of this banana tail? All systems go. We'll need a doctor for this. Uh, Doctor who? Dr. James Dale, an expert in all things banana. Is it fair to call you the banana man <laughs> for this episode? Um, well, a few people have, but there are other people called banana man as well. So, you know. Really? Oh, yes, 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 yes. He is a distinguished professor at the University of Queensland in the School of Biology and Environmental Science. And... How many different kinds of bananas are there? Kaylee, that's hard to say. Um, okay. Somewhere, somewhere between about 300 and 1,000. Okay, that is a range, yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, many of the different types, land races, varieties, have not been either collected or characterised. Let's put this in perspective. What makes bananas important to our diets um, around the world. Okay, well, bananas are one of the top 10 food crops in the world. Most people don't realise that. So rice, wheat, maize, potatoes, cassava, and then bananas. So it's an incredibly important food crop from two reasons. One is that in, in some countries it's their major form of starch. We, we do quite a lot of work in Uganda. So there the consumption can be 500 grams to a kilo per person per day. You know, a kilo of, of bananas is around about 10 bananas, and so they harvest tend to harvest them green before all the starch has been converted to sugar. The rest of the world, particularly the Western world, eats bananas as a, as a dessert fruit. The reason it's probably so popular, bananas are really cheap in the supermarket, and they're produced all year round, they travel well, for instance, you know, they carry their own packaging around with them. And nutritionally, they're very good. You know, it's an incredibly common fruit. It's by far the most purchased fruit in the Western world. I had no idea bananas were so important and that there were so many species. Yeah, but for our story, I want to zoom in on one specific king of banana. It's called Le Gros Michel, or also known as Big Mike. About the beginning of last century, maybe a bit before, they started to export bananas from South and Central America, particularly up to North America and then later over to Europe. And, and the banana that they exported in those days was called Gros Michel or Gros Michel, Big Mike. The reason it was so good is it's, it's high yielding, 
tastes very good. It's got quite a thick skin and and so it can travel without getting too badly damaged. And it grew very well in plantations. Le Gros Michel was super popular back in the day. And to solve our candy mystery, the reason it doesn't taste like the bananas you're used to, well, it's because that flavor was originally modeled after the taste of Gros Michel. Naturally, it's much more sweet than the ones that you're used to in the store today. So that's that 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 was the reason that Gros Michel was so popular. Its prestige had them flying off the shelves. And Kaylee, if you will allow me just a brief tangent to explain just how important these bananas came to be. You never have to ask me to go on a banana tangent. Please proceed. <laughs> okay, yeah, so as Dr. Dale was saying, bananas became an essential and lucrative staple of the North American diet. In the late 1800s and early 20th century in Central and South America, the companies that owned the Gros Michel fields uh, became powerful institutions. And, pardon the pun, but things were ripe for a controversial history to unfold. The cargo is more valuable than pirate's gold, place we call banana land. These companies went beyond the banana business. Hospitals, schools, canals. Even building a railroad to haul bananas through this tropical country is a story in itself. They were all erected during this banana-growing empire. It's where we get the term Banana Republic, as many of these companies became more powerful than the local governments in these regions. For instance, one massive producer called the United Fruit Company was having issues with strikes and local rebellions. So they requested aid from the United States of America. In order to secure its interests, the U.S. shipped its military units. Troops secured the railways and lines of trade, sometimes even leading to violence. This period was coined as the Banana Wars, where interventions were used to keep the companies in a position of power and to keep the bananas coming. And in the early days with Cross Michel, they would harvest bunches and just pile the bunches on a, on a truck or on a ship. And then, of course, all of the next level of technology came on and the bananas, you know, they'll, they'll leave the plantation in South or South or Central America or Philippines where the major exporters are and time it perfectly in these uh, shipping containers. They get to the supermarket and they're perfect. They're you know, perfectly yellow, ready to eat. Our journey to banana land has ended. We hope you enjoyed the trip. We know you like bananas. But for the legendary Gros Michel, there's a reason we don't see it on our shelves today. Its days were numbered. In the first half of last century, a disease, this disease called Panama disease, started to kill the, the Gros Michel in South and Central America and in other places around the world as well. And then it became really a, a pandemic. So what were fruit producers supposed to do? Well, luckily, there was a ready-made solution at their disposal. Um, okay, yeah, so Cavendish came on the scene. And the reason Cavendish came on the scene was that it was resistant to Panama disease race one. It had all of the other characteristics, it yielded well, it, it tasted very good, uh, and it travelled very well. But Cavendish has a really, really interesting history. N nobody actually knows where it came from. Cavendish probably evolved around about a thousand years ago. It was selected from something that occurred naturally. Okay, so we're out. We're we're on the banana tour. We're tasting bananas, and we say this one. We like this one. We need more of this one. Yeah. So the early farmers okay. would have said, "Oh, this is this one's good. It hasn't got any seeds." Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. Sometimes when you cut a banana open, you'll see little black specks, and they're actually the aborted seeds. 
Anyway, going back to the origins of Cavendish. Please. Uh, there was a guy in Mauritius, this is this is in the early 1800s, who was um, a religious pastor, but he was also an amateur horticulturalist. And at that stage, there were a lot of... Um, a lot of Chinese immigrants, or maybe not immigrants, that will be taken there against their will, transiting through Mauritius, and many of them were, were bringing some of their food. Bananas was one of the things that they were bringing. And this guy was collecting all of these different types of bananas. Anyway, he had a, he had a friend in the UK called Barclay, and Barclay was a, also an amateur plant hunter or plant collector. And so this this guy sent Barclay two bananas up to up to his estate up in uh, up in the UK. Unfortunately, Barclay didn't last much longer than that. Oh, no. Not because of the bananas; something else <laughs> well, caused his demise. That was how the things were then. <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes. Um, and anyway, so his family decided uh, they would liquidate the estates, and they sold these two bananas. One apparently went to Europe. Nobody knows what happened to that, probably died. The other one was bought by a woman who gave it to her friend Mm -hmm. who was the Duke of Devonshire. So so rather than the Cavendish be called called the the Duke Duke of Devonshire, the family name is Cavendish. Oh, I I don't know. The Duke would have been a pretty good name for a banana. Can you imagine? (laughs) Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, yeah. So interesting that we we went um, um, when I was over in England. Um, I went out for a conference, but my wife came with me, and I went went up to Chatsworth House, and the original Cavendish bananas are still there. Wow! They've kept them propagated. They've got them in a locked glass house. Has anyone gone on a search to try to find the missing other sucker of the other plant? Like we we know <laughs> it's gone. Has anyone has anyone tried to track this thing down? Um, I I had a, a, a very brief attempt. Yeah, wow. no one no one had any idea. The the only comment that I found was that it had been bought by somebody and went to Europe, and that was it. So maybe somewhere kicking around Europe is 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 the sibling. Okay, <laughs> just a couple of suckers, and one survived, and one maybe not. Yeah, <laughs> Un- that's right. <laughs> yeah, out there on the lamb. The Cavendish banana has virtually replaced the Gros Michel for the many reasons Dr. Dale mentioned, and if anything, we've gotten hungrier for them. In both Sean's and my homeland of Canada, we import roughly 100 bananas per person every year. That's more like banana than Canada. And Kaylee, might I add, that was the end to all of our troubles. We continued popping and peeling soft, squishy goodness into our faces for the rest of our days, riding off into the sunset. Uh, incredible. I believe it. Tell me it's so. Well, you and I both wish it was that simple. Officials in Colombia confirm a fungus that decimated banana plantations in Asia and Australia is now there. Things are not looking so great for the Cavendish, right? Are we sort of seeing history play out again the same way that it did with the Gros Michel, but with the Cavendish? Yes, we are. So diseases particularly have a huge impact on banana production because they're, they're genetically identical. However, in the 1990s, uh, an, another disease, which appeared to be Panama disease, and it is, started to become recognised, particularly uh, in Indonesia and up in Taiwan. 
It was Panama disease, but it was a different strain. It was called Tropical Race 4. And the difference with Tropical Race 4 as opposed to the one that wiped out um, Gros Michel is it kills Cavendish bananas. Deja vu, the Cavendish story is looking a lot like a Gros Michel sequel. But we're speaking with Dr. James Dale because he and a trusty crew of Aussie optimists are going to try and save the Cavendish with science. Unlike the Gros Michel story, where Cavendish was sitting on the shelf and ready to go as a replacement, there isn't anything like Cavendish that's that's resistant to tropical race fall. So we started, my group, we started in, in around about 2000. This disease is looking pretty serious, but that's that, at that time, it wasn't a superstar disease. It was really confined to only a few countries in Southeast Asia. But we decided it was probably going to have quite a big impact. And at that time, we were working on genetic modification of bananas. So we decided when, before genetic modification became a, a real concern for consumers, we started to work on genetic modification because we thought, wow, what a great technology for things like bananas or anything that's vegetatively propagated. What a great technology to be able to improve them. listening to Nice Genes, a podcast all about the fascinating world of genomics and the evolving science behind it, brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm Dr. Kaylee Byers, your host, and we want to get more people to listen to the genomic stories that are shaping our world. So if you like Nice Genes, hit follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Slip us into your friends' podcast feeds by banana splitting one of your favorite stories. Hi, my name's Mark. That's Mark Smith. I'm the farm manager at Darwin Fruit Farms. He heads an operation in the Northern Territory of Australia. I live in Palmerston, which is about 20 minutes south of Darwin and about 45 minutes from the farm. A banana farm. So I'm just gonna load this dog up and we're gonna head off. Let's go. Mick, come on, quick. Good girl. The sky's a brilliant red. It's gonna be another bluebird day. It's dry season. I've been working in bananas pretty well all my working life. I started as a young fellow on my uncle's farm in Kununurra on the Ord River. And in 1995, moved to Lambwell Sagoon in Darwin. Mark has been working with bananas all his life. And a little disease called TR4 completely changed his world. In 1998, Panama was detected in the territory. Within two years, everyone had pulled out. We kept going because uh, we still saw the opportunity of growing local bananas. We tried everything. It was difficult. We got to the stage where we ended up turning the bananas over very quickly and trying to leave the ground fallow for quite a few years and before we planted back into it. But it still doesn't work. There's still Panama's endemic in here and it sort of raises its ugly head as soon as you put a host in the ground. But the banana farm he and his tail-wagging accomplice are taking us to today isn't your average batch of Cavendish. Okay, I've arrived at the farm and I'm heading out the back. 
And the reason I do this lap around the farm every morning before work is to make sure we've got no unwanted guests in the farm. And by unwanted guests, he means... We get a lot of feral animals up here, buffalo and pigs. That can get quite nasty. We also have a lot of native animals here, dingoes, snakes, plenty of snakes, birds, lizards. We've even had crocodiles come up here in the wet season. What makes this field special, other than the crocs and the snakes, is that it's a big experiment. One that has kept Mark and the banana man himself, Dr. James Dale, busy for some time. And it may be one of the first safe bastions for our favorite yellow fruit. Okay, I'm just pulling up paddock now where we're putting bags on bunches or bunch covering. It's something we do every week when the new flowers come out and the petals drop off and the the fingers are exposed or the fruit's exposed, we cover them with a bag. And this is to prevent leaf rub, sunburn, insect attack. So it's only purely cosmetic, but it keeps our fruit looking really good. Hey, Philip, how you going? Do you want to just put this bag on now? Um, The previous owners approached James Dale because we knew of a gene out of a native banana, resistant gene, and asked uh, James and his team if they could... uh, put this resistant gene into a Cavendish banana. But to do that, we had to find a gene that would provide resistance to tropical race force. So that was our first attempt at at coming up with resistance. A colleague of ours, wonderful plant pathologist, an American called Ivan Buddenhagen. Anyway, he was up in Southeast Asia. He saw these bananas growing in a plantation that had been completely wiped out by tropical race force. And here they were growing called Musericuminata malacensis. Uh-huh. It's absolutely full of seed, so there's very little fresh. So he collected the seed and he sent it down to, to Queensland. Some colleagues of mine did some tests and some of the seeds were resistant to tropical race for, okay, what are the genes in this resistant seedlings that were not present in the susceptible seedlings? There is a bacteria called Agrobacterium tumefaciens. Its lifestyle is genetic modification and it has an incredibly wide host range. So it's a pathogen of bananas. What it does is it infects a a, a plant um, and it transfers some of its genes into its host's DNA. And those genes encode certain sugars or genes to make certain sugars that only it can live on. Wow, yeah, it's very, very smart bacteria. What it didn't figure out when it was evolving that humans would come along and say, well, here's this little bit of DNA that the bacteria transfers into its host. What if we took out its genes and put in the genes that we wanted to put into the host. Mm, mm-hmm. And bingo, of course, it works really well. So I kind of imagine it sort of as a post post office person coming to your door every day with like the same flyer, you know, and you just change what the flyer is yeah. that's coming into your house. That's right, yeah. And we came up with a, with a candidate called RGA2 uh, and we transferred that into Cavendish's. We then had to wait a while because we couldn't test them in Queensland because the disease wasn't present. Anyway, we finally found a a farmer up in the Northern Territory and his plantation was being decimated by TR4. And he said, do you want to come up and do your field trials up at my place? And we said, yeah, fabulous. That's great. Yeah. I'm just walking into one of the banana bays at the moment. It's quite um, 
pleasant in here. The trees are quite tall. And in 2012, we planted the first field trial here in Darwin. We took seven lines up there and put them in the field. It was going quite well. I mean, in 2015, banana freckle was in, detected in the territory, so... We started to see all of the non-genetically modified bananas and some of the genetically modified lines as well starting to die. All the bananas in Northern Territory were wiped out for two years. And then two of the lines didn't develop any disease or very small amounts of disease. I think it was 2018, we did another field trial and they're still in the ground now, so. So we got pretty excited. We went through for three and a half years in that field trial and those, those two lines still looked absolutely fabulous. Looking down a row now, about 220 metres down the other end, you see a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Quite a, new, quite a lot of new bunches coming out in this bay, which is good. And the guys have done a pretty good job this week, bagging and harvesting in here. Out of that came this one line of bananas that we now call QCAV4. It's genetically modified, it contains a banana gene, and it's essentially immune to tropical race four. So this would be the first genetically modified banana in the world. And you mentioned excitement. What was that moment like for you when that when the banana was successful? It's, the, it's funny to imagine a successful banana. I'm imagining a banana in like a little suit, you know, with a with a suitcase. It's going to work. But uh, yeah, what was that like for you? Well, yeah, you know, people talk about light bulb moments. Every now and then you do have one, but this wasn't a light bulb moment. This was a this this was a slow burn, you know, because mm. it it took really two years before we knew that that we had something really, really fabulous. So this is our safety net. Uh, if the disease gets really bad in Australia, and it hasn't yet, then we have a safety net. The cultivated Cavendish crop has a genomic trick that will help them resist the Panama TR4 disease. These advancements could help growers like Mark prevent or mitigate the devastating impacts of disease cutting its way through their livelihood and an essential food source for all of us. But even if we defeat this banana-shaped problem today, is there another one boomeranging back at us on the horizon? So what does Dr. James Dale feel about our practice of monoculture and how to create a sustainable future of food production? I'm curious about what you think we should keep in mind when we're making sort of these decisions and potential sort of advancements in our world around food security and, you know, strengthening the crops that we already have. Like, how do you, how do you feel like we should approach those sorts of questions? In my group, we have these sorts of discussions all the time. With, with food security, with what's happening in the world now, with climate change, with, and it's not only climate change, we know with, with incredible movement of of humans around the world, we just exacerbate all the problems all the time. We're going to need all the tools that are available to be able to generate varieties, cultivars of crops that can 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 become more robust. That's that's going to be that's going to be things like drought tolerance, heat tolerance, uh, water logging, all sorts of characteristics that aren't necessarily in the gene pool of that of that crop and that's very important so that's what we just need to be able to be very pragmatic 
The other really important thing is, is that we talked about bananas. There's 300 different cultivars of bananas. The potential is very high to increase the diversity of bananas in the supermarket. And we're starting that already. We're actually, we're actually working on Gros Michel at the same time and say, hey, let's bring Gros Michel back as well. And it doesn't shoot the lights out compared to Cavendish, but it is. It's a really good banana. But there are others that are much better. And to be able to bring those to the market and increase the biodiversity, I think is going to be really, really important. We, we always have this, this concern about monocultures, but we want cheap food. That, that, that's the big conundrum. If you want cheap food, you've got to do it on an industrial scale. The reason bananas are cheap is because they're grown on vast monocultures. I don't think that's going to change. So I think this is some of the real challenges we have in the future, and we've got to really think very seriously about making sure we have the tools available to do those things. When new technologies come through, that that we're open to the very responsible use of those technologies to be able to make sure our crops remain resilient and to maintain that biodiversity. And that's what we really need to do. We need to be able to maintain that biodiversity. Mm-mm. Kaylee, I'm just back from my delicious banana candy. Well, welcome back. So I actually want to round off by passing it back to you, Kaylee. Um, what did you think of what we learned today? Is it banana getting or not? Yeah, you know, as long as I have gone to the grocery store, there have been bananas. And it's usually one of the more affordable fruits. And the idea that all of this is sort of happening behind the scenes to keep bananas accessible to me, that I can get it up here in Canada, is something that I don't think about all that often. And that, you know, there's this disease that could potentially mean that I don't see those bananas there anymore. And so exciting to think about all the work that's going on to to keep bananas on our shelves, this banana battle against this disease, while at the same time recognizing that having access to more diverse fruits and, and keeping that diversity would also be really important for preventing this sort of thing like happening again in the future. Mm. Mm-hmm. No, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do yeah. you? Can you hear it over the smacking of your own lips? What What are you doing? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> you enjoying your snack? Look, okay. Minimum quantity is 100 grams. So I'm milking this audio as much as I can. Good for you. Frugal. I like that about you. Oh, thank you. And how else am I going to keep affording my five bananas a day anyways? So... <laughs> <laughs> Today, we're Dr. James Dale from the University of Queensland School of Biology and Environmental Science, Mark Smith, farm manager at Darwin Fruit Farms. Also appearing on today's episode are our producers Sean Holden and Jenny Cunningham. And a special thanks to all the folks who lent their culinary expertise to us. You've been listening to Nice Genes, a podcast brought to you by Genome British Columbia. If you like this episode, Go check out some of our previous ones wherever you listen from. Share us with your friends and leave us a review. You can also DM the show on Twitter by going to at GenomeBC. 
And if you're listening with kiddos or a teacher looking to spice up your lessons, we have learn along activity sheets added to the show description of each episode. Join us next time during LGBT History Month as our producer Sean Holden heads down under to get the down low on two handsome penguins. So, okay, so then tell me a little bit um, for this last breeding season. So Gen 2 penguins uh, have a really elaborate courtship. One day, two penguins in our colony, their names are Klaus and Jones. Klaus and Jones are two males. They were starting to sing to each other, they were starting to bow to each other, and they were starting to show that courtship behaviour that's quite typical of Gen 2 penguins. We can't plantain our excitement. Thanks a bunch for listening. Listening.